Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. On this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we did air the uh, Martin Luther King annual breakfast in downtown Minneapolis. And my next guest, who is in studio, was moderator of that event. You've heard him on this radio several times. Dr. Yahuru Williams is the Distinguished University Chair and Professor of History and Founding Director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for being with us today. And I was asking you about... uh, the impressiveness of your keynote speaker today that we heard before we started our broadcast. She was phenomenal. And I think one of the things that, you know, at 19 years old to be able to articulate, yes. I think so beautifully and encapsulate some of the challenges that we have in this moment, but do so with such grace and poise. It was pretty incredible. I started the show um, on a, with this possibility, even in this day and age, when we see pushback against affirmative action, pushback against DEI, uh, maybe this is Pollyanna of me, um, but I feel like in these moments where we're at least questioning these policies that have been put in place to make Americans equal, that that is a sign of progress. Am I foolish in saying that? No, I think you're hopeful. And optimistic. And I think that's where we need to be in a lot of ways. I think part of the challenge in our contemporary moment is recognizing that we have these moments of progress that are then tempered by backlash. And so when we find ourselves in uh, moments like today where there's this tremendous pushback, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that we're further along today than we were 10 years ago. But we have to be vigilant so that we don't lose ground as part of that backlash, as part of that pushback. in today for, for African-Americans, uh, the, the main concerns, the main struggles, uh, considering this election year and what, what direction this country might, might go, what, what is at the top of that list? Well, they remain these kind of six uh, challenges that I call the six degrees of segregation. But the main ones are housing, education, access to places of public accommodation. Uh, you'll sometimes hear people talk about the social determinants of health. I kind of fold that into access to places of public accommodation or public services, mm-hmm. um, unfair labor practices, voting rights, and in the most intractable and visible of those six degrees, Jim Crow justice, um, what we see in terms of violence against black and brown people by police, which, you know, everybody kind of focuses on that. But it's those other issues that inform that as well. Uh, this is a almost a- – uh, specifically, if we talk about St. Paul, we look at a, a community that is testing out some of these ideas when you talk about housing or guaranteed income that, again, we see it here when the when we talk about it on the radio, we get a lot of pushback and people wondering uh, about about those policies and how they benefit the greater good. What is the best way to articulate that to like our listeners, people who look like me, white guys or white women? saying they don't understand that. What's the best way to articulate why those programs can work and what a future looks like if they do work? It's such a great question because I think, particularly on Martin Luther King Day, it's an opportunity to go back and to ask people to actually listen to the entire I Have a Dream speech because everyone likes to focus on the last two-thirds of the speech, but the first uh, half of that, or first segment of that speech is all about this blank check, check this debt 
that America owes to African Americans and how in not fulfilling that promise, we undermine the central thesis of American democracy, which is those things that are articulated so beautifully by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence or that we find in the DNA of the preamble to the Constitution, but which have not applied for people of color in this country, specifically for African-Americans. So if you say that you're a nation committed to holding truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal, and then you have a segment of your society where that isn't the reality, then that's not only propaganda during World War II for the National Socialists and the Japanese. That's the reality of a society where that's a liability because we don't live up to those kind of stated goals and objectives. And the reason it's problematic, I think, in our contemporary moment is, is we think about how America is becoming more diverse. Um, And we certainly see this here in the Twin Cities, to deny access and pathways to success for large segments of the population and not recognize ways in which African-Americans are ground zero. Black people have been ground zero in that conversation. means that we don't get the return on investment of what it means to be a diverse nation that privileges and celebrates diversity as a strength. This state compared to others, how are we doing in Minnesota? Well, on most metrics, unfortunately, Minnesota lags behind the rest of the nation. We heard people say this in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, where they talked about um, in terms of education, um, in terms of housing. These are real challenges for us. Where I don't want people to get discouraged is that where there's challenge, there's opportunity. And there's some great organizations that are doing work around this in the Twin Cities, which is really um, exciting to me. So um, we certainly still have challenges in terms of police brutality. We're still epicenter in that conversation. We now have two consent decrees uh, for the department um, here in Minneapolis. We still have challenges around housing. We still have challenges in terms of a a pipeline here for employment. But again, I'm encouraged by what I've seen um, in uh, the state as a whole, but Minneapolis and St. Paul in particular, around addressing some of those um, inequalities. Talk about the work you do at the University of St. Thomas, and this is something that David and I, when we had this conversation this morning about, you know, progress and what it looks like and what it feels like is we always seem to be encouraged by younger people and younger generations feeling like we had a woman call in saying, you know, my grandkids have all kinds of friends. They don't seem to notice. Well, they may notice, but they don't like think our skin color makes us any different. Why does that change? And do you feel more hopeful now that the younger generation actually will do something about making that change? You know, it's a great question because I think part of the challenge that we have is that we are hopeful about the next generation, but at the same time, we put too much stock in the next generation without recognizing what we can do. And for me, there's a Pass it off. Pass the problems off to them. Exactly. And there's a little bit of a a balance here because we talk about somebody like Marley Dias, who was the speaker today. But I mentioned in kind of my intro to her that the civil rights movement was really spearheaded by young people, right? So it's always the younger generation, but they did that facilitated by people who were older than who recognized the value of that continuing struggle for equality. So we don't really pass the baton. We should facilitate growth. And part of that is recognizing that if we see young people tracking in a particular way in terms of identifying issues, can we connect those in tangible ways to the things that we see as problems and further the work? And I think that's what's so great about Marley is why she represents, you know, this kind of young leadership model, but she does it in conversation with um, that older generation of leaders, with those foundational issues we associate with the struggle for racial equality in ways that are very legible to people in community. And you need that. You know, you need the, a person like myself who, you know, may not understand the dimensions of some of the issues that she's facing to be able to say, but I can connect that to police brutality. I know what that looked like when I was growing up. And so in that way, I can make this connection and that's real. 
and then you can build a foundation for people to continue the work. Uh, she was also talking about, <laughs> I forget what question you asked her, but she talked about, you know, dismantle white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's tough, again, speaking for you know, people I know, my friends and a lot of people who listen, they hear that and they think, yeah, but I, I don't think I'm a white supremacist. But that, but, and they, and they fail to see the systems that we're talking about. Is it difficult to, to have that conversation and differentiate that? And, and do you feel that that is, that is part of the pushback, maybe some of the reasons you get some of that pushback? It, it's the nomenclature. I mean, those words are harsh and they're difficult for certain people to deal with because they immediately have this reaction that that's not me. I don't want to be put in that category of people who, when I hear white supremacists, I think card-carrying member yep. of the Ku Klux Klan and burning crosses on people's lawns, and I never would have done any of that. But Dr. King talked about um, extensively um, in his later years how we we're being passive recipients of injustice, and that's what white supremacy is not recognizing the ways in which housing patterns and practices in the state excluded African-Americans deliberately, right? And so that redlining and all those things that went into play, certainly now later generations are benefiting from, and that's a legacy of white supremacy. So if we could understand it in that way, it takes some of the sting off the language, which I think is jarring, and people immediately say, I don't want to be part of that. In the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas, part of what we do, part of my work is bottomed on historical recovery, but I try to do it in a way that's jargon-free because I think sometimes the language prevents people from trying to get into the spirit of what is it that you're trying to um, lead us to understand about this. We talk about Mapping Prejudice, this incredible project out of University of Minnesota or the great documentary Jim Crow of the North, which Twin Cities Public uh, Television uh, put on. They do a good job of that because they go back and they confront that history in a way that then you go, that's what you mean by white supremacy. I benefited by virtue of these programs that excluded African-Americans, and I own my home, and I was able to send my kids to college as a result of that. And maybe we do need to revisit how we got here, and is, is there any reparative work that we could do to address the disparities that have been left in the wake of that? I feel the same way, too, about the language, I, and I brought this up before, is the, like the white privilege, too. I think people recoil when they hear privilege, and they assume, well, well you think that I've been handed everything in my life. And no, that's not what we mean. It's that you, the advantages we faced that we got, we, we've, which we might not even recognize, they exist. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting for me because I often have to kind of lead audiences there in terms of male privilege, which I know very intimately. Yeah. So as a person of color, as, as a black man, I know what racial privilege and, and white supremacy look like. But for me to kind of flip that for an audience and say, but then I have to be cognizant of what male privilege looks like. And that gives me and even should give me a greater window on what it feels like then to understand and appreciate white privilege and what it means to be um, not privileged in certain spaces and in certain conversations. So I think it's all about sensitivity. But again, the jargon doesn't help us. So I think sometimes people lead with, you know, a book like White Fragility, which is phenomenal, or How to Be an Anti-Racist, and they react to the language without the impulse behind how do we build a more just and equitable society and what tools do we need to do that. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 
Can you uh, hang around for another segment? Is that all right? Happy to. Uh, Yahuru Williams, Dr. Yahuru Williams, is the uh, Distinguished University Chair, Professor of History, Founding Director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas. More of this conversation after the break. Linda's Construction Time Check, 1149. Time to receive 50% off installation labor on Minnesota-made Infinity from Marvin Windows on this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. We are joined by Dr. Yuhuru Williams, Distinguished University Chair and Professor of History and Founding Director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas. We also took another call today, too, about a woman wondering about the reaction the public would have if Dr. King uh, were alive today, because I feel like there's this pushback against activists. Not to say that during his time he was well-beloved by everybody, um, but what's your answer to that question, how you think like Martin Luther King would be recognized today? It's a great question because Dr. King was vilified yes. toward the end of his life. So it's a, it's interesting for people to kind of view King in the context now of what um, a legend and soft focus, as Robert Lipsy wrote about Muhammad Ali after Muhammad Ali's passing. So years later, people kind of forget that Martin Luther King pushed back against the Vietnam War and there was political um, capital that he paid for that. That Dr. King spoke out against um, economic injustice in ways that made people uncomfortable. That even though he helped to shepherd through the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, he then marched to Chicago in 1966 and, and really upset northern liberals who had supported the movement and really wanted to look at this as a southern phenomena and didn't want to deal with the racism and injustice in their own backyard. So – you know, if Dr. King were here today, I think he'd um, be a polarizing figure today in the same way he was a polarizing yep. figure in his lifetime. Um, and, and I think that's in part important in terms of how we think about the, this historical recovery. There are people today that we look at who might make us uncomfortable, but there's a lot of growth in recognizing that those who leave us feeling a little uncomfortable sometimes can really help us grow when it comes to big social issues like dealing with racial injustice. The conversation of race, uh, again, we talked about it. It's also often like you, you walk on eggshells when you talk about it because we're so afraid of saying the wrong thing or being viewed as saying the wrong thing. And now those moments can live on, whether it's somebody tweets about it or and suddenly there it is seemingly uh, with, a, with an unending life. How do we overcome that? I, that's the question if we knew the answer to, but... Is there advice you have for people even listening and saying, you know, I'd love to have a conversation about this. I'm just, I, I get so nervous talking about race relations. You know, I'm, I'm, this is tough because we're in such a moment now in terms of people really feeling like you can be vulnerable in sharing your discomfort or lack of knowledge or ignorance, whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it. And that's all of us. So on any number of issues, we can all find ourselves in that uncomfortable position of saying, I didn't know. I, I need to grow. Yep. I have to learn. But I think we have to create safe spaces to do that. And a lot of my work has been about creating those spaces. I don't want anyone to come into an, a, a space of learning and immediately feel shamed or blamed. And yet at the same time, I want to be open enough and honest enough about the history that we can have an earnest conversation about how we got here. And that means tackling some things that are ugly and that should make us uncomfortable. Um, if we don't, then why would we take action? So a lot of this, I think, bottoms on this idea that we really have to be comfortable being uncomfortable, but we also have to get out of this um, basically banishing people or canceling people when they make mistakes. We don't grow if we're selling a society in which we assume that everyone's perfect. The people who we uh, venerate 
in history are those who've made mistakes and learned from those mistakes and have done incredible things given the knowledge of where they failed. And I think we lose some of that when we focus on this idea that linguistic um, certitude and imperfection, the way we talk about an issue, equates with real change. I, I change any of that. Um, I trade any of that for a moment mm-hmm. for real reform and policing or um, an expansion of access to uh, health care for all. You know, those are the things that matter. And some of the individuals who delivered that, you know, Lyndon Johnson um, was used the most colorful language probably of any president. Right. Um, and if we look back on him, people would look at him and say, well, he was a white supremacist. And yet in terms of his programs and policies, he did more to address civil rights than probably any president in the 20th century. So it's, it's important for us to understand that. We need that nuance and that space for people to fail, to make mistakes, but to be uncomfortable being uh, be comfortable being uncomfortable so we can get to those growth points. Speaking of president, we have a presidential election happening this year. Um, what most concerns you uh, and about your struggle and your movement uh, with this race that's happening this year and, and the future of this country? You know, I, I am still concerned about the long shadow of January 6th and what that represented. When mm-hmm. people marched to the U.S. Capitol and this is what we when we were talking about white supremacy earlier. You know, people say, well, I don't see that that was racialized. Well, when you march on um, the U.S. Capitol carrying the Confederate flag and the new symbols of white supremacy and racial terror, then there's it's hard to decouple that from the history and to, to say that in no way was that influenced by this kind of backlash against diversity, equity and inclusion or tackling racial justice. So I'm concerned a lot. I think in this moment there's a lot at stake. Um, in terms of American democracy and democratic practice, not in terms of Republican and Democrat, but in terms of a president who, you know, leaves office basically wrecking the machinery of government and wrecking the whole um, machinery of how we've practiced peaceful transition of power in this country. That should be concerning to all Americans. Democracy is at stake in that sense. So, you know, I, I think for me, as I think about this, why we need that John Lewis voting rights legislation to ensure communities of color will still be able to exercise the franchise unencumbered by political chicanery and rules changes and those types of things. It's why you really have to, we all need to be invested in going out and exercising this because January 6th is less about what happened on that day and more about what we do in response. And that means that we really have to dig deep into practice everyday democracy. And a big part of that is how we use the vote, utilize the vote. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.